Because faith comes through hearing the message of Christ, this sermon has been uploaded for you by Grace Unlimited, a ministry that functions out of Living Hope Church, Pretoria, South Africa. We want Jesus Christ to have first place in everything in our church. And we want to help you know and follow Jesus in all of life and to help others do the same. Find out more or download many more free sermons at graceunlimited.co.za or livinghopechurch.co.za. Good morning, everybody. Okay, thank you so much. Um, Sorry, he's wearing a nice shirt today, okay? You want to like this shirt? Pretty nice shirt, that shirt. Nice color. Um, so, um, uh, I'm actually not wearing this shirt because it's Valentine's Day. I'm wearing this shirt because I have two shirts this formal, and I wore the other one two weeks ago. So, um, simple. But I am preaching to you about love today. Not romantic love, um, but the love that God calls us to have for one another as Christians. The love God calls us to have for one another as Christians. And it's going to be a bit of a different sermon in that I'm going to be in multiple different passages. And we're going to be moving quite quickly. Um, But I trust that God will use it to be an encouragement to you. So now, we do know that God's called us to love everyone, right? The, the greatest commandment is that we must love God himself with our heart, soul, mind, and strength. And the second commandment, Jesus says, is like it, which is that we uh, must love our neighbor as ourselves. Okay? But it is also true that God calls us to a special love for Christians. So to give you just one example of many in the scriptures, Galatians 6.10 says, So then, as we have opportunity, let us do good to everyone, okay, so we must love everyone, and especially to those who are of the household of faith. Especially to those who are of the household of faith. See, we are brothers and sisters, we are family, and it makes sense for us to have a special familial love for one another. And um, in fact, there's even several places in the Bible where our love for other Christians is even emphasized as a distinguishing mark, as a proof of a true believer. Um, Blake was reading from one of those passages in 1 John, um, just leading up to this sermon. First John 10 is another example here. By this, it is evident who are the children of God and who are the children of the devil. Whoever does not practice righteousness is not of God, nor is the one who does not love his brother. True Christians love one another. True Christians have a special love for other Christians. And we see in our Bibles also that this love must be an active love. It must be a love that is put into practice, a love that, that, that does, a love that serves. It can't be merely talk. 
First John 3.18 tells us, Little children, let us not love in word or talk, but in deed and in truth. In deed and in truth. And we've seen some of how love must be expressed and put into action in deed and truth in the sermons we've heard over the last couple of weeks. How we must encourage one another and how we must use the gifts that God's given us to serve one another. Our Bibles also warn us against a love that is just going through the motions. A love that is just outward, just external. God calls us to have a love for one another that is sincere, brotherly love. A love that is described as fervent, or your translation might say earnest, and from a pure heart. We see that in 1 Peter 1.22. The love God calls us to have for each other feels, it cares, it involves affection. It's from the heart. But how do we grow in this? How do we grow in a special, fervent, sincere love for other Christians? That's what I want us to give our attention to today. I want us to look at some of the ways that we see in Scripture that God motivates us to love one another. He doesn't just tell us to love one another. He motivates us in various ways to grow in our love for one another. If we think of our love for one another as a fire that God calls us to burn, then the question today is, what is the wood, the charcoal, the petrol even, that we, we want to put in that fire so that it burns bigger and burns brighter? So let's start in. How can we grow in our love for other Christians? Number one, be amazed at God's glorious plan for the universe with God's people right at its center. We see this in the book of Ephesians. In chapters 2 and 3, Paul unpacks God's amazing plan to save sinners. As Hamilton uh, even referred to earlier today, we were dead in our sins. We were headed for hell. We were completely unable to do absolutely anything to save ourselves. But God, in His amazing grace, raises us from the spiritual dead and reconciles us to Him. But then He keeps going. And in bringing us to Himself, He also unites us all together into one body, one harmonious one, including people who have historically hated each other. People who Paul describes as having been divided by a wall of hostility. Our world is cursed by sin, and sin has many, many effects. And the heartache and devastation sin brings is far beyond the fact that sinners, unforgiven, unrepentant sinners, go to hell, as awful as that is. We feel the devastation of sin. 
in our world in so many ways. And, and so many of those ways have to do with the way that we people interact with each other. Fighting, killing, divorce, abuse, wars, racism, slavery, genocides. Our world's history is a history of people pridefully thinking they are better than others and treating others shamefully. Or at the very least, just looking out for themselves. Themselves and their own, not caring about others. Humanity is splintered apart, is broken, deeply broken. We are in rebellion against God and at war with each other. But God is reconciling us to Himself and bringing us together around King Jesus. He's overcoming the curse. He's turning it all around. He's making all things new. Paul tells us in Ephesians that God lavished the riches of His grace on us as He fulfilled His eternal plan to unite all things in Jesus, things in heaven and things on earth. He's bringing it all together around Jesus. Harmony, unity, peace around Jesus. Starting in Ephesians 2.13, we read, But now, in Christ Jesus, you who once were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For He Himself is our peace, who has made us both one. A different group of Jews and the Gentiles is talking about. He has made us both one. And He's broken down in His flesh the dividing wall of our city. Continuing on a little further down. That he might create in himself one new man in place of the two, so making peace. And might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, killing the hostility. It's big. It's big. And this plan that didn't just happen this way was an eternal plan. Ephesians 3 verse 9. This was the plan of the mystery hidden for ages in God who created all things. God had this plan, but it wasn't fully understood by us or as we see here, even by spiritual beings. Verse 10. So that through the church, through us, right here, through God's people, the manifold wisdom of God might now, might now be made known to the rulers and authorities. That's the spiritual beings, angels and demons in the heavenly places. This was according to the eternal purpose that he has realized in Christ Jesus our Lord, in whom we have boldness and access with confidence through our faith in him. You may have heard the expression, living the dream, right? Well, brothers and sisters, we are, we're living the miracle. The miracle. And what is that miracle? That miracle is, is right here. It's you. It's y'all. Right? It's you all. It's us. We are slap bang in the middle of God's eternal purpose for the universe. For reversing the curse and making all things new. 
something that powerful spiritual beings wondered about for centuries and are amazed at still. We're the miracle. People from all cultures united as family forever by Jesus our King. And if we look ahead to the end of time, to the culmination of all things, to God's perfect plan completed, what do we see? What's the end goal of God's eternal plan? Oh, we sang about it earlier. We see Jesus being praised in Revelation 5, and one of the worshippers singing, Worthy are you! Is he worthy? Yes, he is. And why is he worthy? Worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals. For, because you were slain, and by your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. And you have made them a kingdom and priests of God, and they shall be on the earth. He is worthy because he rescued and united his people for all eternity. We're living in miracle. We're going to be singing about this forever. In Ephesians 4 verse 1, this then is the fuel for the fire. Paul's been talking about all this for the first three chapters, and then he heads to how he wants us to live, what he wants us to do with it. For verse 1, I am therefore a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called. You must walk worthy of being called to be a part of this amazing, glorious plan, to be slap bang in the middle of it. And how is that expressed? With all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. These actions of love, of, of, of loving community, how we treat one another and live together, it all flows out of being captured by the beauty and the and, and the the greatness, <laughs> grandiosity, I don't know if that's a real word, but that's what I was going to say, right? Just the gloriousness of this incredible plan and realizing here we are right in the middle of it and what God has done is He's brought us together and we see it as beautiful and we want to maintain it. We want to live it out. Number two. Remember how much we have in common in Christ. Remember how much we have in common in Christ. People tend to feel most comfortable with people like them. They tend to build friendships with people they have things in common with. I'm sure you've noticed that Congolese people in South Africa find each other. Right? And I'm sure you've noticed that Zimbabweans in South Africa find each other. And when I was in America, I noticed that South Africans in America find each other. Okay? This, is, this is the way we're wired. It's very, very normal. Fans of certain sports teams, sports teams build friendships around supporting their team. People who enjoy the same musical styles enjoy connecting over music. 
Anyone likes Bollywood music? Frankie Hamilton is the guy to connect with, which is probably three, right? Um, others bicycle together, or they run together, or they surf together. We tend to connect with people we have things in common with. But here's the thing, brothers and sisters. The things we have in common with one another as Christians are not things that are obvious and on the surface. Okay? Think about this as an illustration. Imagine two rooms. In one room, there's a bunch of white men in their 20s and 30s. They're all wearing Springbok rugby jerseys, eating biltong and brewerwurst, and watching on a big screen a rugby game, and screaming their heads off, cheering for the Springboks. Okay? Right? Now, if you stick your head into that room, right? If you're a white rugby fan in your 20s or 30s, you're probably immediately going to feel very, hey, my people, right? This is very comfortable, right? And if you're not in that demographic, you might not feel very comfortable in that room, okay? Let's imagine another room, okay? In this room, there's an elderly Congolese lady, a 19-year-old Zulu young man who enjoys hip-hop music, a conservative Afrikaans man in his 60s, a newly married colored couple in their 20s, and a lady in her 40s visiting South Africa for a few months from Malaysia. But they're all Christians. The first group may look like they have more in common, and they may, when they meet each other, feel more connected more quickly. But it's over very shallow things, right? Very shallow things. And the second group, what do they have in common? Small talk is going to be very difficult. They might even struggle to understand each other over accents, thick accents. There's going to be some big cultural differences that they're going to have to work around as well. But what do they have in common? Profound, deep, eternal things. Gratitude and deep affection for their Savior. A passion to see the gospel spread. Comfort and peace in the midst of trials because they know that God is faithful and trustworthy and works all things together for their good. And an unshakable hope for a glorious eternity. A shared glorious eternity. Because they have Jesus in common, every spiritual blessing in Him they have in common as well. See, when Paul calls us again in Ephesians 4 to work earnestly at maintaining our unity as believers, he reminds us of how much we have in common. Ephesians 4, verses 4 to 6. There is one body and one spirit, just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. Do you hear Paul's emphasis here? One, one, 
one, one, one, one, one. Seven times. You are one. You have these things in you. have so much in common. nothing in common with other Christians except Jesus. You have the most profound and meaningful and lasting things in common with them. Number three. Remember that our unity and love for one another glorifies God and testifies to the power of the gospel. Romans 15 verses 5 through 7. May the God of endurance and encouragement grant you to live in such harmony with one another, in accord with Jesus Christ, that together you may with one voice glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, welcome one another as Christ has welcomed you for the glory of God. John 13, verse 35. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples, if you have love for one another. It glorifies God and it testifies to the watching world. And as Ephesians 3, as we saw earlier, even says, even spiritual beings look in and see the manifold wisdom of God's plan when they see how He's brought us together around Christ. Some of you may have read The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe from the Chronicles of Narnia uh, book series, um, or maybe seen the movie. And there's, in that movie, um, there's kind of a, a picture of the, of the curse, of the, of the way the world has been affected by sin, is, is that um, everything, there's an eternal winter. There's a winter that never ends. And not a South African winter. You know, we're talking about lots of snow and ice. Okay? That never ends. And then, as things start to move, Aslan, the lion, who represents Jesus in, in this book, as things are, are moving towards him making everything right again, what starts to happen just slowly and subtly is that the ice starts to melt, the snow starts to melt. And it's small, you know, it's not, it's not, it's not earth shattering initially, but hey, this eternal winter, the, the starting to turn around. This thaw, this melting has begun. The curse is beginning to be reversed, and there is no stopping it now. Do you realize, brothers and sisters, what's happening right here today? This is a room full of people who've been raised from the spiritual dead. And though there would be very few reasons for many of us to spend any time together in the world, We greet one another warmly and call one another brother and sister from the heart. 
And we sing together to the same thing. Our unity in Jesus, our love for one another, is a declaration. It's a declaration. The good news is true. Jesus really is who he says he is. He is the Savior. He is making all things new. He's reconciling rebels to God and uniting all peoples in him. Number four, remember Jesus' example of love. In Philippians 2, verses 3 to 4, Paul exhorts us in this way. He says, In humility, count others more significant than yourselves. More significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. And how does he motivate us towards this attitude and way of life? He continues, verse 5. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped or to be held on to. Right? But he made himself nothing, taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. And he found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Paul motivates us towards thinking of others and choosing to serve them rather than just going with our own comfort, our own preferences, by looking to Jesus' example. Jesus was God, very God, and had every right to stay in heaven and continue enjoying all the comforts and glories of being there. But he humbled himself and came down to this earth and became one of his creation. Not a king here on earth, not just the son of a carpenter. And he obeyed God in everything. Remember, that's for Jesus to save us. He, he couldn't just have showed up on the day and gone to the cross. He needed to live a life in which he fulfilled all righteousness. And this wasn't just about not doing things wrong. It was also about doing all the things that God calls him to right. Being obedient even to the point of death death on the cross. When you're reluctant to serve others because it's uncomfortable, Paul says, remember Jesus' example. One Bible commentator refers to Jesus' entire life on earth as his humiliation. His humiliation. Pretty powerful way to think about it, isn't it? 33 years of humbling himself every moment of every day so that he could serve us and fulfill all righteousness and save us. And in dying on the cross, of course, he meets our greatest need forgiveness and full reconciliation with the God of the universe. 
His entire life was an act of humiliation in order to love us and serve us. But of course, the cross itself is the most striking kind of microcosm of that. You know, we look at the cross and, and it's so clear from the cross that this is Jesus preferring us, thinking not of himself, but thinking of us, serving us. But there's a second specific act of service within his life that the Gospel of John highlights for us as well. And that's the foot washing that we see at the Last Supper. See, in those days, people wore sandals, and most people walked everywhere on dirt roads. It was part of the culture when you had people over for a meal to have a servant at the door, the lowest servant in your household, who would meet people at the door and wash their feet as they came in. But in this particular case, uh, for for this, this Last Supper, it's a room that's been made available to them. There actually isn't a host there. It's just a room that's been made available to them. And what we've seen in the Gospels leading up to this meal is lots of arguing and, and bickering between the disciples about who's the greatest. Who's the greatest among, among us? So as they come into this room, it's not surprising that none of these disciples think to themselves, oh, there isn't a certain care to wash the feet. Maybe I should do it. Not one. They all just enter the room and they sit down, ready to eat. But then Jesus gets up from the table. He takes off his outer robe, and we know from, from some other places in the Gospels that he'd been gifted a robe that had tassels that the kind of marked him, distinguished him as a rabbi, as a teacher, as someone worthy of respect. So he takes that off. And what that leaves him with then is these under robes, which would have been what, what the servants would have worn. Okay. And he wraps his, wraps his towel around his waist, and he goes one at a time, kneels down at each disciple's feet, and washes Feet, including Judas' feet. And the text makes clear at this point that Jesus was fully aware that Judas was betraying him, even actively at that moment betraying him. And here's what Jesus says to the disciples afterwards, starting in verse 12 from John 13. Do you understand what I've done to you? You call me teacher and Lord, and you are right. So I am. If I then, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. For I have given you an example that you also should do just as I have done to you. Now, the foot washing came. This is actually really neat. Um, this, is, this is just, it's, it's an example, right, of a way to, to just humble yourself and serve others. Okay? The point is not necessarily that you come over to my home and I ask you to take your shoes off. No, I should be. Okay? 
The point is, though, as a way of life, we are people who wash one another's feet. And it's pretty neat, in talking about what a godly widow looks like um, in the pastoral epistles, one of the ways she's described is someone who has washed the feet of the saints. This became something that Christians looked to as as an example of exactly how they should be living uh, lives of service and love to one another. The disciples spent so much time arguing about who was the greatest. And then the one who is the greatest stood up and shows us true greatness, forgets about comfort and privilege and position, and takes the initiative to love and serve others. Our Lord humbles himself and serves in this way. We should too. John 13, 34. A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another just as I have loved you. You also are to love one another. Number five. Remember how much Jesus loves his people. Are we going to grow in loving God's people by remembering how much he loves his people? One of the things I'm finding very humbling in life is just how fast life moves. I remember thinking as a kid when I'd hear older people talking about, oh, life flies. And we're like, well, kind of. But it is, yeah, now I'm living it. Now I'm living it. And I feel like it is just flying is not even a good enough word. It's zooming by. Okay? And one of the crazy experiences is just you know, in one sense, feeling like you saw somebody just yesterday. You know, good, close friend. And then to realize, no, it's been 12 years since I've seen them. And they've got a 12-year-old kid that I've never met. It's very humble. Um, and I know, though, if now, even another 10 years from now, I still haven't seen this friend. Dear friend, um, but then I get a knock on my door and I open my door, and the person at the door introduces themselves to me as the child of my friend. I know I'm going to be very interested in them, I'm going to do whatever I can to be of help to them or service to them, and, and, it's, and I don't even have to think about it much, it's going to be very much from my heart, simple. Because their parents are dear friends of mine, and I love them, and I know that they love their child. So I'm very happy to extend love to their child because of my love for them. This is the way Paul motivates us in Romans 14. Um, although, first of all, I'm going to have to give you a summary of this passage. It's a bit complicated, but I'm going to try, try to do it briefly. The, the, the context is Christians with different beliefs about whether or not uh, it's sin to eat meat that other people have offered to idols. Okay? And 
the nutshell of what Paul says to them is he says, it's not wrong, it's not sinful, but you have to have a clear conscience about it. So if you, in your heart, um, believe that it's wrong to eat this meat, and then you go ahead and eat it, then it is sinful. Because you thought you were sinning when you ate it, and you ate it anyway. Okay? And God knows the hearts, and God doesn't approve them. Okay? That's the basic argument in this, in this passage. But then Paul goes further and he says, okay, keeping that in mind, you need to remember that if you're with a group of other Christians, okay, and you know that you can eat this meat and it's not sinful, there may be other Christians with you who do think it's sinful. And then they see you eat the meat and they follow your example and they eat the meat even though they believe it's wrong to do it. Which means you encourage them, you lead them to sin. Okay? And Paul um, cautions these Christians to not just think about themselves, but to think about their brothers and sisters with them. Romans 14, verses 13 to 15, listen to how he reasons with them here. And he says, Therefore, let us not pass judgment on one another any longer, but rather decide never to put a stumbling block or hindrance in the way of the brother. I know and I am persuaded in the Lord that nothing is unclean in itself, but it is unclean for anyone who thinks it's unclean. For if your brother is grieved by what you eat, then you are no longer walking in love. By what you eat, by what you eat, listen to this strong. Do not destroy the one for whom Christ died. The one for whom Christ died. How's that for a motivation? <laughs> you start off just thinking to yourself, but this is the tastiest meat in town, and I want to eat it. If it's not sinful, come on, bring on the bacon, right? And then you go to yourself and think to yourself, okay, but I'm going to think about I need to think about this other person. How, how can I lead somebody into sin? And my Savior died for Complete perspective change. Complete perspective change. Another example, Matthew 18, verses 13 to 14 reads this. It says, oh sorry, okay. First of all, context, Matthew 18, parable of the lost sheep, okay. Jesus tells us that God the Father is like a shepherd with a hundred sheep. Okay? And he loves each individual sheep so much that if one goes missing, he'll leave the ninety-nine and go searching for the one that's missing. Now, verse 13. This is how the parable continues. And if he finds it, truly, I say to you, he rejoices over it more than over the ninety-nine that never went astray. So, it is not the will of my Father who is in heaven that one of these little ones should perish. 
So brothers and sisters, if we know that, we know that that's true. Surely that's a huge motivation to us if we stop realizing, hey, you know, I haven't seen so-and-so for a few weeks. You know? We can't just look to ourselves and say, hey, well, we still got a good group here on Sunday. And so-and-so wasn't really all that involved anyway. No. We realize how much it matters to the great shepherd that one sheep has gone astray. And we do what we can by God's grace to bring them back and to know that that's a great joy to our God. It helps us love one another when we remember how much our God loves His people. Number six, remember that loving Christians is loving Jesus. Okay? This is a similar motivation to the last one, but it comes at it from a little bit of a different angle. And basically, Jesus loves his people so much that we see at a number of different points in the scriptures that he considers that the way we treat other Christians as being the way we treat him himself. Him himself. Remember when Jesus confronted Saul on the road to Damascus? When Saul was still persecuting Christians. Acts 9, verse 4 to 5 reads Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And he said, Who are you, Lord? And, I said, and he said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. Jesus viewed Saul's persecution of Christians very personally. It was as if Saul was persecuting Jesus himself. And there's a very striking passage in Matthew 25 in which Jesus is describing the judgment at the end of time. He points out that one of the ways that true believers will be distinguished from false believers is how they have loved other Christians. In this particular teaching, that is the test of true faith. How they have practically loved other Christians. But notice the way Jesus drives his point home. Matthew 25, verse 34 and following. Then the king will say to those on his right, Come, you who are blessed by my Father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. For I was hungry, and you gave me food. I was thirsty, and you gave me drink. I was a stranger, and you welcomed me. I was naked, and you clothed me. I was sick, and you visited me. I was in prison, and you came to me. And the righteous will say, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you or thirsty and give you drink? And when did you see when did we see you a stranger and welcome you or naked and clothe you? And when did we see you sick or in prison and visit you? And the king will answer, Truly I say to you, as you did it to one of the least of these, my brothers, you did it to me. You did it to me. Now sometimes this passage is used 
as a general argument for us to care for the poor. And there's many, many uh, passages in the scripture that do just that. Um, but this particular passage is better understood um, as a way that the Christians are to care for other Christians. And the reason for that is because of the phrase, the least of these, my brothers. Okay? My brothers. In, in, throughout the New Testament, we only see that phrase uh, used either to refer to blood relatives or to Christian family, brothers and sisters in the Lord. So what this passage is really driving home is that true Christians love and serve other Christians. And not just the pastors, not just the, the wealthiest members in the church who, who put the most in the offering plate, not just the, the, you know, the, maybe the famous sports star who's a member of the church or, or the person who's got some other highly respected job, not the person who sings the beautiful solos, not, not just those people, but also the people that would be very easily overlooked. The Christians that the world might think are not that impressive or not that important. Yes, and that includes uh, some lower income people or people going through various hardships. All of them are valuable to Jesus. Every Christian is valuable to Jesus. So much so that he says, the way you treat them the way you treat me. This may sound a bit funny, but according to this passage, it's true. You realize you have the opportunity to offer Jesus a ride to church next Sunday. You have the opportunity to help Jesus move. You can help Jesus by stationary for his children to go to school or to buy his groceries, or afford his rent. You can sit with Jesus and comfort him, because his close relative just died. You can have Jesus over in your home for a meal. You can love and serve Jesus practically, by loving and serving other Christians. Lastly, number seven. Remember how Jesus loves you. Remember how Jesus loves you. In, four, in Ephesians 4 and Colossians 3, Paul not only calls us to forgive one another, but adds in Ephesians, as God in Christ forgave you. And in Colossians, as the Lord has forgiven you, so also you must forgive. In Luke 7, 36 and following, we see the story of a lady who's described as a woman of the city, uh, somebody who was understood to be a sinner, quite possibly a prostitute. And this is the lady who comes with perfume and anoints Jesus' feet, and she's just crying and crying so much that she has to let her hair down and wipe Jesus' feet. And the Pharisee who's hosting the meal is so offended by this. You know, this woman, she's over the top and this is not appropriate and, and whatnot, right? And Jesus stands up for her and explains the situation. And he says simply, 
She has been forgiven much. Therefore she loves much. And the point of this passage is not that this rule-keeping, self-righteous, religious Pharisee needed forgiveness less than she did. That's not the point of the passage at all. Because what Jesus is doing is he's confronting this Pharisee with the fact, you don't see your need for forgiveness. You are not loving me the way she's loving me because you don't know that you need forgiveness like she knows she needs forgiveness. And she knows she's been forgiven. And forgiven much. And because of that, she loves much. Do you know how much you've been forgiven? Are you this lady weeping at Jesus' feet? Or are you the Pharisee who thinks she's got it pretty much all together? If you understand how great a sinner you are, and you understand how great God's grace is that has been extended to you, you will be someone who forgives much and shows much grace to others. Think about it this way. How much love you are willing to extend others, how much love you are going to proactively seek to extend others, is an expression of worship. It's an expression of worship because if you know that you have been loved beyond what you can possibly understand, if you know how great your sins are, your sins, every one of your sins is against the God of the universe. And we're talking about since the day you were born and Kicking up a fuss against your, your, your parents trying to change your nappy for no reason other than the fact that you are, you, you view yourself as the center of the universe and everyone must do your will. Right? All the way through your whole, your whole life, through every lustful thought, every, every prideful thought. All the ways that you lie, gossip. Harsh words, uh, sexual sin, um, conflicts with people, and, and unwillingness to forgive people. Every sin through your whole life. If you really, really realize how phenomenal it is that the God of the universe is forgiving you, right? Then in loving, you get to, you, you can approach you, you can approach God with this mindset where you basically say, God, I, this person has hurt me like crazy. Everything within me wants to justify not forgiving me, not having anything more to do with me. But I'm going to forgive them because I know you've forgiven me so much more. I know how you've loved me, so I will love 
the people of to you. And walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us, a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. First John 3.16 By this we know love, that he laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for the brothers. Those who have known mercy, show mercy. Love people, love people. Or as First John 4.19, we love because he first loved us. How can we grow in loving our fellow Christians? Be amazed at God's glorious plan for the universe and remember that God's people are right at sin. Remember how much we have in common in Christ. Remember that our unity and love for one another glorifies God and testifies to the power of the gospel. Remember Jesus' example of love. Remember how much Jesus loves his people. Remember that loving Christians is loving Jesus himself. Remember how Jesus loves you. We want to love more. We need to spend more time looking at our Savior, being amazed by him and all he's done for us. Let's be honest with ourselves, right? If we are not loving much, maybe we're not appreciating as much as we should how much we've been loved. May God help us. May God help us. And as we love one another, and love one another better and better and more and more deeply and with more and more perseverance, more and more grace, when we put the gospel on display, and bring our great God, great glory. Amen? Okay, let me pray first. Oh God, thank you for loving us. May it hit home to us just how much we do not deserve your love. And just, yeah, like Paul, I want to say, God, we can't understand it by definition. You've told us we can't understand it. But we ask you to help us understand how much you've loved us. We thank you that absolutely nothing can separate us from your love. And we pray that we would be people committed, devoted to loving as fully as we possibly can because of how well you have loved us. Amen. Mm-hmm.